0: I'm Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed and host of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. I am thrilled to invite you to attend my free virtual training on how to create your ultimate annual fundraising plan to raise more money. If you're frustrated that your current fundraising plan is not getting results you need, if you're charged with raising even more money during challenging times and with fewer resources. If you find yourself hampered by working with an inaccurate donor database and you're not sure where to start or how to create a custom, bold, data-informed fundraising plan that can help you raise more money, then this training, it was made for you. In this training, you will learn my proven framework for developing a data informed donor-centric annual fundraising plan. You'll learn how to strengthen your fundraising foundation meaning annual fund, major gifts, plan giving, how to determine what is working and could be scaled in your fundraising program, and how to determine what's not working and should be reimagined or retired immediately. What new and bold thinking strategies and tools you can use to enhance your fundraising plan. Plus, when you stay till the end, you get my fundraising plan guide absolutely free. If you need help with creating your ultimate annual fundraising plan to raise more money, then I would love to help you. It'll only cost you an hour of your time. We will reap capacity. Visit fundraisingtransform.com forward slash training and claim your free spot now. If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First T of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Today, I'm excited to talk with Andy Robinson. He's a trainer, consultant, and author, and an all around expert on fundraising and board development. Since the pandemic began in March of 2020, he has designed and facilitated 150 online meetings, webinars, and remote workshops covering topics like fundraising, board development, marketing, leadership development, facilitation, planning change management, and train the trainer programs. Andy is the author of six books, including Train Your Board and Everyone Else to Raise Money, and his latest book, What Every Board Member Needs to Know, Do, and Avoid. He lives in Plainfield, Vermont. Andy, welcome to the show.
1: Hemi, thank you for hosting me and inviting.
0: Well, I'm delighted. So let's just jump in. My first question for you is, you know, I feel like recruiting and engaging board members can be a little tricky. We're all really excited in the beginning. We have high hopes. We want to make a difference. Tell us, what does every board member need to know, do, and avoid?
1: So this is a book's worth of content, right? So I've decided I'll just pick two things from each of those categories, right? What do they need to know? I think they need to know how much time is expected of them and how much time they can justifiably give to the organization, right? I currently chair a board, which is a considerable amount of time. It's a grassroots organization with a budget of $100,000 and one employee. And in that environment, board members actually have to do some work. Your sleeves board. Yeah, right. And so, you know, how much time is required? How much time do I have? That's answer number one. Answer number two is what they need to know is they have to understand the business model of the organization. Where does the revenue come from? Where does the revenue go? What can they do to improve that? And I think that's part of their work is to make sure that the organization is financially sound. We I mean, mm-hmm. Board members are fiduciaries, and that basically means they have to know where the revenue comes from, where it goes, and making sure that it's as strong as possible. In terms of what they need to do. I will suggest two things. Board members need to be ambassadors, right? They need to be out in the community representing through whatever networks they're involved in, in person, online, at work, through their social activities. You know, board members need to represent. And the second thing I would say that board members need to do is to trust the staff. I don't know if this is true about you. I bet it is. I have made a career out of going around the country telling boards what the staff has been telling them for years, but they hear it differently from me because I'm a consultant or I got on an airplane or (laughs) they paid me a lot of money or maybe I'm an old white guy and they want to listen to old white guys. Right. And it's sort of goofy because often the wisdom I'm giving them is the same stuff the staff has been telling them they need to do, but they hear it differently depending on who the messenger is. Right. Which gets me to the avoid category. We talked about knowing and doing and avoiding. In terms of avoiding, I'd suggest two things. Number one is micromanagement, which is a cousin to trusting the staff, right? Is know your lane, know your altitude. The board is up here. The board is not down here. Stay out of the weeds. Do the strategic work. As I say, know the business model. We can talk about fundraising later because that always comes up in these conversations, right? But let the staff do the staff's work and do your work. And the second thing I would want them to avoid is staying on the board forever. Okay. I do believe in term limits, right? I do believe in turnover. I believe it should be mandated. It's a good thing. Right. So if I'm with somebody who's like, I've been on this board for 20 years, I I have many questions to ask, (laughs) starting with why. So those are two no's, two do's, two avoids.
0: I love that. And- Man, could we talk all day about just that? Yes.
1: Well, I want to interview you too. What would you add to that list? Any category? What would you add in the no, do or avoid? Mm. And I did not prepare you for this, so.
0: No, I think it's good. I would definitely do a deeper dive on trusting the staff. Yeah. I feel like so often people think that anyone can fundraise, that there's no science to it, that there's no process model, and that. Gosh, all we need to do, I literally had a board member, a wonderful man who I adore. And he said, here's what you got to do, Tammy. Just throw a big party in honor of fill in the blank billionaire philanthropist in the community who was not affiliated with our organization. Just throw a big party in his honor and he's going to give. No, that is really not how it works. But I get his heart was in the right place, right? And so it's just trusting staff and understanding that fundraising, that there is a science to it, there is a process to it and to trust the staff or to really be open to learning because as staff, we are happy to share and pull back the curtain on a lot of the best practice and the emerging trends and what philanthropic psychology is now revealing to us about fundraising and donor engagement. We would happily share that to an open audience who's willing to join us, not kind of run over us. Yeah, I, I
1: imagine you have interacted with or interviewed or worked with Kim Klein at some point in your career. is great, a godmother to all of us in this space. And I asked him many years ago, what do you think the number one criteria is for being on board? And she said, willingness to learn.
0: Mm, I love right? that.
1: Open-mindedness, humility, like, oh, how do I do this better, right? And I think if you show up humble and you show up open-minded and wanting to learn new stuff, that's a really good entry point to being a good boy.
0: Love that. Mm. All right. So let's move on. I feel like well-meaning board members often make commitments, whether it's to call a potential sponsor, to make an introduction to their circle of influence. Right some action item, and then life happens, right? They get busy. How do we hold busy board members accountable to follow through on what they said they would do?
1: Okay, so I'm, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, so bear with me. First of all, I am really conflicted on this question. I have seen awesome boards that do their work, that engage at the right level, that participate in fundraising. I mean, I've seen the model work, I also think it's a funky model. And for example, one of the ways this is built is that we have amateurs who are board members supervising professionals, the staff. Like in what universe is it a good idea to have amateurs supervising professionals, right? And I understand the legal theory here. Like you want owners of the corporation who are non-conflicted and represent the community and the model makes sense in a legalistic sense. It does not make sense in a practical sense. So I am on both sides of this. I do a lot of board training. I train board members to raise money. I train board members to be better board members. I facilitate board retreats. It's primary work for me. I also do a workshop called Give Up on Your Board. And, you know, it's specifically around major gifts fundraising. And maybe we should build that into the staff and build that into everybody's job description as opposed to relying on these volunteers who have families, jobs, hobbies health concern, travel, right? So I want to give my board members some grace. And how do we hold volunteers accountable? I don't, mm-hmm. right? We have shame. We have guilt. I don't like either of those. No, right? not good
0: options. We have
1: inspiration. So, I mean, I'll give you one specific tool I have used that works reasonably well. I'm a believer in creating, in terms of fundraising, I'm a believer in creating something like a board fundraising menu where there's options for board engagement. It's not like everybody sells 20 raffle tickets. It's here's a mix of stuff that needs to get done that is board level work and people can choose their activities. Um, And I feel like this is board fundraising 101. This is not new information. But the accountability piece, and this might be new information, is once people have made agreements to these are the pieces I'm going to do and this is what you're going to do, I would take 10 minutes at every board meeting and go around the circle and have every board member report on what they have done for fundraising since the previous board meeting. So there's sort of a self-accountability piece. And this works two ways. If people know they're going to have to report in front of their peers, they're more likely to follow through and do stuff because they don't want to look bad in front of their peers. Yes. So that's sort of the maybe the shame and shame-ish or guilt-ish part. But the other part is when people hear what other folks are doing, they're like, wow, this is cool, we're actually doing this, right? And they're thinking, okay, I want to grab the rope, I want to pull, I want to be part of this. So on one hand, it's accountability with a capital A, but it's also, hey, we're all in this together. So it's almost a team building's process of everybody knowing what everybody else is doing. And that's an imperfect answer to what you're asking, which is a difficult
0: question. It is a difficult question. And I think it's a really good answer. You know, that one size does not fit all. Yes, when we sign up for a board, there are certain must-dos, right? The fiduciary accountability, the being present, the 100% board giving at whatever level is personally meaningful for that particular individual. Sure. And then you're right. There could be dozens of options for how they could plug in based on, to your earlier point, what is their time availability? Yes. What are the things they enjoy doing that are at ease for them? What gifts and talents can they bring to it? I love that because it's a strength-based approach that lets board members shine. And you know what? It's
1: realistic. Occasionally, I'll come across peers, and God bless them, they're often good at what they do. But the thing is like, we're going to create this amazing board where everybody raises money and they're all going to love it. And, and I'm like, really? So let me do a little truth telling here that may be awkward, but you know, I'd be curious to get your take on this. And you and I have worked okay. with many, 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 many boards in our respective careers. Here's what I see. Best case scenario. A third of the board gets it, prioritize it, rolls with it, top tier, middle tier, they'll do it. They don't love it. It's not the reason they're on the board. Second tier, third tier. Resistant obstructionists sometimes, right? I don't want anyone else to do it either. Right. And what I'm saying is, and this is what consultants say when no one else is listening, what I'm saying is, you know, this is as good as it gets. And One of the mistakes I see consistently is we are managing to the bottom tier, trying to get the people who are doing nothing to do something, as opposed to taking the people that are pretty good and making them better and taking the people that are quite good and helping them become leadership. So it pains me to say this because I am an equity person, but I am willing to leave some people on the side of the road as we take this journey forward. And you know, if not everybody wants to get on the fundraising bus... Again, pains me to say this. I am willing to leave some of them behind and find some other ways for them to engage in board service if fundraising is not their thing. So yeah. I think people are trainable. I think we can remove the barriers. We're probably going to talk about this. There are things we can do to make fundraising more accessible and less scary. And having said that, we ain't going to get everybody. Yeah. And I am old enough now to be okay with that.
0: <laughs> and don't you? <laughs> I have think- made
1: my peace with the inequity <laughs> of what I just said.
0: Yes. So, yeah.
1: Accountability. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think we have to work with the people who want to do the work.
0: Mm -hmm. I have found that when I have that truth telling, candid conversation with the staff, with the CEO, with the chief philanthropy officer, and we say this is normal. Like you're not alone. There's almost like a sigh of relief. Like, I just thought I was failing at leading this board, at inspiring these board members to be the best version of themselves. And we might have glimmers of it or a third of them, like, as you said, Andy, yeah. a third of them who consistently show up that way. And Crush it,
1: you know, and, and they're impressive and they're inspiring. Yes. Right? But that's great. The other thing I would say, like, that's the bad news part. Here's the good news part. If you can get five or six people into that top tier They can change the culture, right? And it filters down and other people, okay, there's a new sheriff in town. We are actually going to do this now. And so what I would say to someone who's on board is struggling with this is try and figure out how you're going to build the skill set and the leadership of the people who are already fundraising forward in their thinking. Yeah. And that can be enough to actually change the whole situation.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I recently had the pleasure and privilege of interviewing Seth Godin on this podcast. Oh, that's fun. It was very fun.
1: That's a get. Good for you. Well,
0: (laughs) he's just generous. That's all I asked. Yeah. You know, you don't get 100% of the things you don't ask for. Right. As they say. Yeah. And he was generous. But we talked about his brand new book, The Song of Significance. And he asked the question in the book, like, what if this was the best job you ever had? How would you show up differently? And I would say we could adapt that question. What if this was the best board you ever served on? What would that look like? What would that feel like? What would you bring to it every day? And the truth is that when people feel, to your point, that sense of inspiration, passion, purpose, we're really moving the needle. We're really getting somewhere. It creates an energy that, you know, high tide raises all boats, as JFK said. And there will be some, perhaps it is that third at the bottom, who are like, this isn't for me. This is not my show. It's not my show. I'm going to be part of this. That's okay. Let them go. Bless and release. Bless and release. And you know what? They may find a board that is the perfect fit for them or other volunteer work. And we hope they do. And
1: I want to stress, there's a lot of smart people in our industry. Not all wisdom moves in the same direction on this. You know, I mean, there is a piece of work called community centric fundraising, which you are familiar with. Yes. And who's a genius. And that whole thing is based on the idea that we should not center our donors. We should center the people we serve and the communities we engage. And they would say 100 percent board fundraising maybe isn't the standard. Maybe there's a different way to think about this. And I'm open to this. Right. I, I don't know that there's a right answer to this question. And I like it when people challenge the orthodoxy and say, wait a minute, I'm going to sort of echo something you said. I do a lot of fundraising workshops, and the number one thing I get asked to do is how do I get my board to raise money, right? That work never goes away. There's, you know, two ways to think about this. Either we're not training or developing or recruiting or building the board around that capacity, which is a legitimate way to think about it. The other way to think about it is maybe our expectations are off base, right? And So I will say at the beginning of the workshop, like how many of you are happy with your board's fundraising performance? Raise your hand. And like one or two hands go up, right? And I say, look around the room. Notice how much everybody else is struggling with this, right? So if your board is not meeting your expectations, message number one is you're not alone. You're not alone. And you're not alone. (laughs) And which gets us into this conversation of either how do we improve their performance or how do we change our expectations? And I think at the end of the day, it's some of both, right? You'll remember this data, the turnover on fundraisers and organizations now, this is like AFP data, is like 18 to 24 months, right? Exactly. That's how long a development director lasts. On average. And part of what's going on is the development directors, the professionals are showing up and saying, oh, the board isn't raising any money. I want to go somewhere else. And meanwhile, the board is going like, wait, don't we hire professionals to do this? Why do we have to do it? And everybody's doing this thing. Like, you do it. No, you do it. And I think development directors, because there's a shortage of fundraisers, are shopping around for a board that will actually lean in and do it. And I question that a little. I understand why people want that. But I would love to have a fundraising model that's less board-centric, I guess.
0: Yeah. And just to circle back on the community-centric fundraising movement. Yes. I think there's an and space. I don't yeah, think it's right. donor centric or community centric. I think Lovely. it's and and to your point, the board member menu of options. So there are the must-dos that we talked about, but the m- options could be make thank you calls, write thank you notes. You know, like things that aren't about fundraising. And that's where we maybe can find now, pause. Equitable. They are about
1: fundraising. They're not about asking for money.
0: There right. we go. So yes. we
1: have to have this holistic definition of fundraising. That's the whole steward, donor stewardship and management process, the whole cycle.
0: Yes. Yeah. And maybe we don't call it fundraising because it's an off-putting, right. fear-inspiring kind of word.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, such a juicy conversation. So you mentioned that board members, they can be incredible ambassadors. In fact, they can be some of our most effective ambassadors especially those at the top tier and that middle yes. tier, those that yes. really raise their hand. And, yep. and frankly, those that find that community engagement, those conversations, when they find that life-giving. So if they're passionate about our cause, if they find purpose and meaning in their involvement, they are naturally hardwired to be that community ambassador, to be sticky out there telling stories. How do we best equip board members to be those ambassadors, to be those storytellers for our cause from your point of view and your many years of experience equipping board members to do just that?
1: So what's interesting is in the last decade, and I don't know if I started marketing this, it just started happening. I have been getting a lot more requests for ambassador training.
0: Mm you know,
1: and it's on my website and I'm offering it. And often it's the back door to having a fundraising conversation because you don't use the word fundraising. But if you're out representing, it doesn't have to be about money, but sometimes it yields. So there's huge demand for this. Note to other consultants who are listening in, yeah, there's a need for better ambassadorship. So answer number one is training, right? Teaching people how to be out in the community. And I would offer two parts to that. Part number one is better listening and asking better questions. And you and I both know that donor conversations are 60, 70% listening and 30 or 40% talking. You know, Jerry Panis used to talk about listening the gift. And so ambassadorship is the same thing. And one of the training pieces I do, which people are welcome to do themselves, is I take the idea of an elevator pitch which is, you know, if you were locked in an elevator and you had 90 seconds to convince somebody to do something, what would you do? And I flip it on its head and I say, let's talk about elevator questions. If you had a minute or two or three or four to start a conversation with somebody that related to the mission of your organization, what questions would you ask to stimulate a conversation? So here's an example. I work with a lot of conservation land trusts that are working to preserve land for conservation, recreation, habitat, biodiversity, climate change, all of it. And so, you know, you might talk to someone and say, like, how long have you lived in this community? Well, I've lived here for 25 years. Okay, in the 25 years, how have you seen the landscape change? How do you feel about that change, right? So these are open-ended questions. It's not yes or no, it's not, have you heard of my group? What have you heard about my group? It's more about who are you and how do you connect with this? So that's number one is focus more on the questions than the pitch. Number two is, and this is a classic mistake we make, is we think everybody has to memorize the same five bullets and memorize the mission statement and be able to say, and that's bogus, right? I want people to tell their own stories. I want them to come to their own articulation of the work and why it's valuable, including their own story of why they connect with the work. So some of the training is about helping people come up with their own version of why the work is valuable, how they connect to it, and maybe even why it might be of value to the person they're talking to. So short answer, we could do an hour on ambassadorship, but I have found that it's an easier bar for people to get over in terms of rather than doing fundraising, you start with how do we message? How do we ask better questions? How do we listen more deeply? I have done listening exercises with people as a way to help them focus on what they're hearing and not be telling their own story in their head while they should be listening to somebody. Yes. So, those are some answers to that question.
0: So good. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang.
1: We love Bloomerang because it's so like it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang year over year, we have raised more funds. So obviously I think Bloomerang has been a a huge part of that.
0: By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. Just thinking about that, thinking about mm-hmm. the questioning, you know, and the problem with the elevator pitch is that it is a monologue. It's all talking.
1: It's a monologue and it's canned.
0: Yeah. Right. And it it's the idea that you're like, going to
1: have one spiel that works for everybody.
0: Yeah. And when someone comes at me like that, I literally find myself taking a step back. Physically. Yes.
1: Yeah, right. You, you recoil.
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, it's true. And yet when someone asks a question that makes me think, that helps me connect to the values that I have, I lean in. I think that's human nature. I think you're correct.
1: And the other thing I would say about this, people assume that to be an ambassador, you have to be an extrovert, right? And you have to be comfortable with people and you have to be able to walk into a room and walk up to a stranger and start talking to them, blah, blah, blah. So two points. First of all, the best ambassador version of you is the authentic version. Second point, if you're an introvert, It's an asset because you're going to show up and not take up a lot of space. And if you're good, you're going to ask people questions and you're going to allow them to occupy that space. And in some ways, introverts may be better equipped to do this because they tend to be better listeners and they tend to, like, take up less space. Mm -hmm. So... That's nice for people to hear because often it's like, I don't want to talk to Strain. I'm about to sit at home and read a book and say, okay, well, let's think about how we use that as a superpower, right? And not a barrier. Yeah. And the answer is listening.
0: You're reminding me of an old Jim Rohn kind of anecdote. And he, of course, was a business consultant back in the day, wrote many books. He says that there are two kinds of, in his world, it was salespeople. Sure. In our world, it would be fundraisers. But right. there's the person that walks into the the room, the party, and essentially says, ta-da, here right. I am. <laughs> and there's the person that walks into the room, kind of looks around the room and says, ah, there you are. And I do agree with you that some of our most powerful ambassadors are the, ah, there you are, people.
1: And... I would even argue that there you are in that sentence could be you plural. It doesn't have to be you singular.
0: Yes. Right? Yes. It could
1: be there you are.
0: As we say in the South, there y'all are.
1: There y'all are. <laughs> all y'all are here and I'm here with you. <laughs> Indeed. Right? It's good. One of my careers many years ago was teaching preschool, which was actually really good training for fundraising and many other things. Sure. But we had this awesome three-year-old kid who would show up on circle every morning yeah. and he would like run into the room, slide into circle and go, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, this kid is going to have a career doing something that puts him, I should yeah. track him down and see if he's an actor or something. Because
0: Such confidence.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also annoying if you're trying to run circle, you know, it's distracting. <laughs> but having said that, it, it may be a personality type, right? It shows up early. Yeah. But I like what you said. I like what Jim said. It makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Andy, a question came up. I was talking with a client recently, and they were kind of lamenting that they have some of their board members are appointed board oh, members.
1: Uh, we, we mentioned this. Yeah. Say more. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, you know, maybe it's a city official or a police officer, or maybe it's clergy, and they are told as part of their position That they need to serve on this board and to provide guidance and input. And that's great. They have a wonderful perspective, a lived experience, a wonderful point of view that makes that board stronger. And many of them feel that they should not be expected and therefore do not make a personal gift to the organization, which of course makes fundraisers who are trying to achieve 100% board giving. It makes us kind of crazy. What do you suggest? What do we do in that scenario? Well,
1: first of all, what I'm thinking of, and I've worked with a number of these organizations, are the community action programs, the CAP agencies. And they are federally designated to have a tripartite board, which means a third of them come from the community. A third of them are people who benefit from services provided by the CAP agency. And the last third comes from the government. It might be the state. It might be the mayor's office. It might be Police might, you know, anyway, it's called the public piece, which is in this case means government. And so they struggle with this all. I don't have a great answer. I think part of this goes back to, do we have understanding of the business model and knowing where we get our money from and how we can make it more resilient and get more unrestricted money? A lot of these kinds of groups are very grant dependent and very restricted grant. That's model. Model two is the old trick of the challenge gift, which is, you know, donor X gives us a thousand bucks or 5,000 or 20,000 on the condition we have a hundred percent board giving, right? Nice. And then you go to the board and you say, Hey, everybody's got to kick in something. It's not about the amount. It's about participation. And for us to collect this 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, whatever it is, every one of you has got to. Kick so that can be a way to attack that is to put a sweetener out there, put a carrot instead of a stick. And the mm-hmm. carrot is, yo, we don't want to lose all this very money, so please give your $25 or your $50 or your $100, right? The third thing I've seen done here, and it's a variation on this, is a challenge from another board. So they actually know each other and the board member says, I'm willing to double my gift, but only on the condition that every gives something. And the fourth thing I would throw out there is maybe this is an opportunity to, to talk about your sustainer program and your monthly gift, right? And maybe you've got a board member who says, I don't have to do this because I'm here representing the mayor. whomever." And like, would you consider giving $5 a month that we can take automatically from your bank or your credit card? Are you paying any bills that way? Are you buying your Netflix that way? We could do that too. Yeah. And if it's a small enough amount and it's amortized monthly, it's almost invisible to people, not even aware they're giving it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think it's an opportunity to build your sustainer program if you have resistant board members. And maybe even it's a challenge to the membership. You say, we have several board members who are willing to step up and become sustaining members, but only on the condition that we can get 25 of our members to become new sustainers. And so you have the board challenging the members who in turn are challenging the board. None of these answers are great. And again, maybe we're in a position where the 100% board giving is this holy grail and we do the best we can and maybe we don't get there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is part of reimagining philanthropy and fundraising's role in it. Perhaps it yeah. is. Although you did get some good nuggets there. I think there's some room. To- I, yeah.
1: I'm, I'm not wrong. I'm just not complete. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not the total answer to the question. We're sort of nibbling around the edges, but it's something. It and, is something. you know, the other thing, and this is a variation of what I said earlier, we are starting to see some funders. When you submit a grant proposal, one of the questions is, "Do you have a 100% board?" Yeah, yes. right. And I would want to sit down with those recalcitrant board members and say, "This isn't coming from me. This is coming from the funders. I am just the messenger. You can get angry with me. I am just the messenger here. And if we don't qualify for this, or we don't qualify this grant, or here's the work we can't do this year. Yeah. So, do you really want your fifty dollars that you're not giving?" To create a barrier to all the work we can do, right? You know, the other question that comes up in this space, and I'm sort of agnostic on this one, is if a board member has a business and their business contributes, does that mean they don't have to give personally? And can you count the gift from their employer or from their family business instead of a personal gift? Well, my response is I would rather have both in the ideal world. And I'd love to hear your take on this, but I'm Pretty flexible on that just because I want to be inclusive. What do you think?
0: I think that as long as we are consistent, like let's pick the criteria for what board giving looks like yep. and let's be consistent across the board. I think that's for me the most important. Yeah. Okay. Now, looking we're looking for equity. Yeah. Now, I will tell you that my less enlightened fundraiser from my past, my former self, was a little more hardcore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, no, buying tickets to the gala does not count. count. Doesn't count. That raffle ticket, that doesn't count. Kind of a badass back then. Well,
1: Well, you know, I'm not opposed to that. And people tune in because they want answers. And sometimes what we have are better questions.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's okay. I mean, not every one of these questions has a cut and dried, clean, 100% answer. That's okay.
0: Yeah. This yeah. is
1: complex. It's supposed to be
0: complex. And we can check that box. We can it is own, complex. right?
1: We can own <laughs> that this is complex and then we manage it as best we can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In your book, Train Your Board and Everyone mm. Else to Raise Money, which I'm mm-hmm. holding up. It's got lots of posts. Well, I was going to hold it up too, but you've already
1: done it, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's <laughs>
0: fantastic. Good book. It, and you, it says, The Cookbook of Easy-to-Use Fundraising Exercises, and that it is... Like so many scenarios, whether you're doing a full day retreat with your board or a half day, or you want to foster those connections with staff. I mean, just literally hundreds of exercises. So I love it, love it, love it. And agendas and outlines for these various meetings. Share some of your favorite 20 minute or less exercises to re-engage board and staff.
1: So first of all, let me do a shout out to my co-author, Andrea Kilstead, who is one of the gurus of capital campaigns and is a treasure to all of us. And it was way fun working with Andrea on this book.
0: Um, So she
1: needs to be acknowledged. And our publisher, Emerson, former publisher, Emerson Church, who put us together, new publisher now, if you're looking for the book, it's Civil Sector Press, which is published out of Canada. And to answer your question, I'll throw you two faves. I'm dropping all the names today. This is one that we learned from Gail Perry, who's another wonderful fundraiser in our world. Yes. And Gail taught it to Andre and us. And it's real simple. It's called Why Do You Care? And so you have board members grab like a note card, a tiny little piece of paper. and, And the deal is we have to write down why you care about the mission of the organization in your own words. And then what people do is you say, all right, everybody stand up. You got a minute find another board member or another person in the room to talk to and simply share what you've written. Each of you has about 30 seconds. You could read the card, but you can also just talk to each other. Like, why is this important to you? After a minute, somebody, the facilitator, rings the bell, blows the whistle, bangs the drum. You say, okay, find another person to talk to. They rotate, they repeat the conversation. They do it again, usually four rounds. It could be three. And then after four rounds, you sit them down and like, what did you hear? What were the themes? What's the through line? And sometimes I'll ask people, did your answer change as you were listening to other people? And did you come up with different language, right? So it's very energizing. People are up and moving around, but also they're having these really sort of intimate conversations really quickly. Because if you ask people why they care about the mission, they tend to start talking from their hearts. Yeah. And what happens, and this is like the pedagogy of it, but the repetition tends to drive them even a little deeper. So as they repeat the answer, they tend to get a little more personal with it, a little more heartfelt. Hmm. So that's a very simple exercise. It takes 15 minutes. I've used it as an icebreaker with groups. I've used it at board meetings. The second one is a variation.
0: I I just have to tell you, Andy, because I love that so much and I have used that exercise. And here's what I find so fascinating. I'll ask, show of hands, how many of you learned something About a board member that you've known for years, yes, and you had no idea. That's great. And almost every hand in the room goes up. And again, if when we bring that kind of passion and that connectedness at that level, I feel like people lean in and want to show up and like do more. Because they're
1: on a team of people they know and like and trust and want to spend time with. It's yeah. not complicated, right? I'm starting to do more in-person work. I don't know if we're post-pandemic, but we're in a different phase, whatever it is. And I, I did a board retreat for a client this month. We had a whole day, like we had till like nine to four, maybe. They hadn't seen each other in three years. Physically. Wow. They had, the, this board hadn't been in a room together, and th- plus they had some new board members. They wanted two and a half hours of icebreakers. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I did some crowdsourcing from friends who, you know, and I said, okay, I got some in my pocket. What do you recommend? And they actually threw out some ones I hadn't thought of or didn't know. And it was the best thing for this group. So I actually did like four different icebreaking exercises before lunch. Yeah. Um, Shuffling the group into different small groups. And one of them was the simple walk and talk, which is find two other people to talk to. We were out in a beautiful rural place in Vermont. And I said, you got 30 minutes, walk around the grounds and talk to each other. Talk about whatever you want. You know, Mm -hmm. you can talk about the organization, You talk about your grandkids, you can talk about what your job is like these days, whatever. Right. They loved
0: it. And, you know, when we know each other, we trust each other more and we have the space to have more courageous conversations. Yes. And we want to show
1: up for each other in deeper and more meaningful ways. Yeah. And I will tell you, one of the people who came, I said, how was the day at the end we did the debrief? He said, I was really sort of skeptical that this was a good idea because we were of all this woo-woo, touchy-feely stuff and I wanted to talk about business. And he said, I'm so glad I came and I was wrong. We needed to do this for the reasons you just said, right? right? So that's one. I'll give you another one quickly, which is a variation. The first one was called, why do you care? The second is called, why do you give? And the way this works, and you've done this too, is you get people in groups of three or four or even pairs and you say, just talk about what motivates you as a donor. A donor to this organization or really any organization, like why do you give? And I give them three or four minutes to just bat the ideas around. We come back and I'll pull out the old fashioned flip chart because I want to capture what they said. And I will write down all the different reasons why people. And I'll say like, what do you notice? What are you seeing on this list? You know, what do you think the top three reasons are? We talk about it. And what's classic is I'll say, how many of you have ever made a charitable gift and felt good? Raise your hand. All the hands go up. I say, here's the million-dollar question. Why are we so uncomfortable asking people to do something that helps them feel good when they do it? Like, we're all cranked up about asking us so hard and, we're, and you know, we're going to bother people and they're going to be annoyed and they're going to hate us. It's like, no, they love it. People like to give, and the number one reason they give is because somebody asked them,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: So it's a backdoor way of unpacking their fears and misinformation about fundraising. And that is an exercise I have used for decades, and it's pretty foolproof. It almost always gets me where I'm trying to get the So those are two from the book.
0: Fantastic. Such juicy nuggets you've been giving us. Thank you, Andy.
1: Sure, Sure, I'm here to help.
0: Yeah. So at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid-fire, insightful questions to add just a little extra value for our listeners. Yeah. Are you ready? Roll them. All right. First question. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received?
1: Oh, yeah. If you don't ask, you don't get.
0: (laughs) Yep. What book do you recommend to our audience and why?
1: So I'm going to go a little sideways here because part of my work these days is training trainers and training facilitators and training consultants. There's a book I really like called The Facilitator's Guide to Participatory Decision Making, which is a mouthful. You can find it at a website called communityatwork.org, The Facilitator's Guide to Participatory Decision-Making. And if you work with groups at all, this is an awesome handbook for how to work with groups more. It has absolutely nothing to do with fundraising. It's really all about group
0: process. Love it. And we will find that and include a link to it in the show notes. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess?
1: Optimism, stamina, (laughs) humility.
0: Mm. Good ones. Really good. What's your favorite fundraising application or tool?
1: I'm going old school. I'm just going to say email. It's, it's still one of the easiest ways to schedule with donors to, you know, it's how you and I got this all scheduled, right? Yes. It's as old as it gets. If I'm old enough. I remember a world before email, but I still find it's the tool I use the most.
0: I also half expected you to say my ears. That's a great answer. Well, that is the perception I have it of you answers. after this conversation. That's Two who ears, you are. one mouth. There's a
1: reason, you know, that somebody that's intentional.
0: What's your favorite conference and why?
1: All right, another sideways answer. I stopped flying about five years ago in response to climate change, and so that's been a change in my life because I've worked in 47 states, I've worked across Canada. I used to be on the road a lot, and so I'm going to fewer conferences simply because I'm not getting on airplanes. Having said that, again, I'll give you a slightly sideways one. I'm a member of the Alliance for Nonprofit Management, and the website is Alliance Online. The Alliance is a network of capacity builders. So they might be trainers or consultants or facilitators or funders. It's people like you and I who help our clients get better at whatever they're trying to do. And the Alliance is a peer group for me. I have several, but it's one of my favorite peer groups because it's people who do the stuff I do. Um, And they do a good conference every year. In recent years, it's been sort of half in-person and half virtual. And anyone who is either a trainer, facilitator, consultant, funder, or aspires to be those things, check out the Alliance. It's allianceonline.org.
0: Fantastic. Last question, Andy. Knowing you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just starting out in the profession?
1: I'm not my younger self anymore. <laughs> Newsflash.
0: You have a little you know, in your beard. Uh, Just a yeah. teens.
1: Well, I, that's a lot of stories, but I won't tell them now. So my advice I would give myself is, first of all, you're on a good pass. This is actually a profession. You can make a living doing this. You can interact with amazing people all day, every day. You can be inspired often. But the other thing, and this is something I tell my clients, is that if you learn how to raise money, You will have more. Um, You will have power within your organization. You will have power within your movement or movements, plural. The people who bring in the money have more say in what goes on. And I would have said to myself, if you aspire to have more agency and you aspire to have more power and you aspire to design your own path, learn how to raise money. And so that would be the advice I would give my younger self. Keep doing it.
0: Very good. So, Andy, thank you. You're amazing, and we just so appreciate everything you've shared with us today. Thank you.
1: Tammy, I appreciate the invitation. You're pretty amazing, too. If you're somebody's grandmother, you don't look like it. So congratulations on that. And if you ever want me back, let me know. And please send me the link when this is available, and I will share it with everyone I can think of.
0: We, yes to both. Yes, we'll send you the link. And yes, we're absolutely going to have you back.
1: And, and give us a shout-out for Detroit, Michigan, because I see it on the front of your shirt here.
0: That's right. Hello, Detroit. We love Detroit. For Detroit. D-Town. If you want to learn more about Andy and his incredible work or follow him on social media, we will include links to all of his handles in the show notes, as well as links to the many other resources we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional, or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransformed.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of 27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes new content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.